chapter 5. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning at chapter 5, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. One of the uh, evangelical uh, free church's ten indicators of a healthy Christian is entitled or called Passionate Spirituality. We agree uh, as a free church with Jonathan Edwards, the old American revivalist, that, and I quote, The religion that God requires does not consist of weak, dull, and lifeless wishes which scarcely rise above indifference. In His Word, God insists that we be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You'll recognize that from the book of Romans. Those who deny this may as well throw away their Bibles, Edwards says, and get some other rule by which to judge the nature of their religion. Now, that's true. We believe in passionate spirituality, but as the video clip has already demonstrated, there's probably today in our generation no more elusive topic than the topic of spirituality. The word, the word spirituality, the English term spirituality or spiritual uh, is is a slippery term. In the English language, there are at least three different senses. One of them, for example, comes from the physical world, the old medical world. The physical world talked about those fine fluids that we find that exist in the body, supposedly. Referred to as animal spirits. You probably heard the expression, that's a spirited horse. Or, my, she's in good spirits today. Well, that's, that's one uh, of, the, of the possible meanings of this word spirituality. By the way, don't think that you and I have not been influenced by that today. Lively in the English language means spiritual. So when you come to a worship service and it's not lively, some people think you haven't been spiritual. Lively, spiritual. Another word uh, association uh, is with the idea of being mystical, something deeply inner or something upper or something beyond somehow. And I was thinking of a way to illustrate this, and I'm going to date myself a little bit, uh, with the Star Wars uh, uh, movies and, and the Jedi Knights who were able to get in touch with the Force, the Force, Luke, the Force. Now, the force is so far beyond anything that we know that it's actually beyond personality. C.S. Lewis somewhere remarks that, isn't it interesting that something that becomes supra-personal in the modern world becomes impersonal, not personal at all? And, and that's sort of the view some people have of spirituality, that it's this, this thing that's so far beyond anything we can imagine that it, it can't even be personal. And then there's uh, the biblical uh, word, uh, and I think John chapter 10, verse 10. I think this, Jason, is one of your favorite uh, verses. I hear you quote it all the time. John chapter 10, verse 10 just simply says that spirituality is life. Physical life, married life, single life, work life, church life, secular life, prayer life, life. It's just life in all of its dimensions, lived to the full, lived to that fullest measure that God has intended for us to experience. 
That's the biblical term of spirituality. It's nothing spooky, nothing floaty. It's just life the way God intended it to be lived, life to the full. So the word slippery, but let's use that as our foundational concept. John chapter 10, verse 10. That's our foundational concept. That's what we mean when we're talking about spirituality. But even when we've defined the meaning of the word. Now the concept behind that word, even among Christians, gets slippery. Uh, so, for example, one view of Christian spirituality is what I, I've come to refer to as 100%ism. And I hear this all the time. I just hear it all the time. In fact, one of the books from my library, quote from it, says, How may a Christian be established in grace? That's the opening question. And then here's the answer. First, the consecration must always be complete. Does that bother you? Second, our obedience to all the known will of God must be complete. Does that bother you at all? Third, our faith in the cleansing and keeping power of God must be complete. Now, I know what they're after. They want a whole-souled, wholehearted, uh, a serious uh, commitment to Jesus. But it, gives, it, it almost smacks of perfectionism, doesn't it? It's almost, if I haven't done this 100%, I'm not there yet. That bothers me. I, I don't think that's biblical. I think the Bible is addressed in our time to fallen people, even if we are born again, regenerate. I still think there's a lot of messed up parts of Jim Fan. I don't know about you. Uh, and I don't always agree with John Calvin, but Calvin said this. He says, There never existed any work of a godly man which, if examined by God's measure, would not deserve condemnation. Well, now, that's interesting. What that means is, is that I am to do my best works, but I recognize in every good thing I do, there are a lot of wrong motivations and there's a lot of ugly stuff all messed up with that. And the blood of Christ doesn't stop covering me just when I believe in Him. It also covers me as a Christian when I live for Him. And as I'm doing things, even if it's not 100%, the blood of Christ makes those imperfect works of mine acceptable before Him. So spirituality is not 100%ism. It's always covered by grace. It's always covered by God's uh, love for us. It's always covered by Christ's blood and His work on the cross. So I don't mean to imply that being spiritual means being 100%. Now, don't misunderstand me. I do think that we're to be highly motivated and we're to be driven and we're to strive in the Christian life. I just don't think that perfection is available to us here on planet Earth during this part of our life. The second uh, concept is a word I've uh, borrowed from C.S. Lewis. He calls it uh, cloud cuckooism. Uh, I remember years ago, they used to have this Milky Way commercial, this guy that died and went to heaven, and he's standing on a cloud. Now, you can understand his concern. You want to be careful what you eat if you're standing on a cloud. And so he has this Milky Way. He says, do we eat up here? Now, that's sort of some people's view of heaven, as if it's some kind of a floaty, cloud-like, ethereal, non-real, spooky existence. That's what some people think we're headed for. I just suggest they need to open their Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and remind themselves of a spiritual, bodily existence. Our existence in the future is going to be very human. 
It's going to be different than any kind of humanity that we've seen before. It's going to be like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's going to be very human, not cloud cuckooism. And then there's this last uh, uh, mistake I think we can make. I I call it do-nothingism. It's sort of a let-go, let-God theology. There's some believers that that get so into spiritual things that it's got to all be of the Holy Spirit. So say, hey, I just go into neutral. And and I'm kind of wafted over here. And I'm kind of wafted over here. And as the Spirit moves me, I don't participate in this, but as the Spirit moves me, then I'm spiritual. Now, you know what? Philippians chapter 2 says that there is some involvement on my part. It tells me that I am to work out my salvation because it is God who works that salvation in me. Now, Pastor Rick can probably explain the, the paradox in that verse to you. I cannot. But I can tell you that they're both there. And my good efforts count. Well, with those kinds of things in in mind this morning, I I just want to talk uh, briefly today about what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus um, on a practical level? Let's get down to earth. I'm even going to give you a test this morning at the end of the sermon. Uh, A practical level. What does it mean to be a spiritual man, a spiritual woman, a spiritual young person, a spiritual boy or girl. Well, it's a tough one, uh, and uh, I don't intend to exhaust the subject this morning, but I think that's what First Thessalonians chapter 5 is trying to get at. In fact, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 1, you'll see this is a topic. And this would be a great handbook, by the way, for you to start studying and even memorizing and and uh, thinking about seriously, because First Thessalonians chapter four and chapter five is a handbook on how to be spiritual, how to be godly. Because chapter four verse one says, Paul, after he's put all these things together, he says, "Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God." That's what the last two chapters are about: how to live in order to please God. So I would just suggest you read through these chapters. I'm going to come to the very end where he kind of pulls it all together and summarizes it with some big concept words. Uh, I'm going to use uh, my large words to describe what he's after. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 28, I see at least four ingredients of a life that pleases God. If you're going down this trail, if you're following this pathway, If you're doing these kinds of things, then I believe biblically on the authority of God's Word, I can say to you that you're living a spiritual life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. Verses say, strange verses I've got to tell you, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Now, let me give you the Jim Fan modern paraphrase of what this verse is saying, translated almost literally. Stop pouring cold water on the Holy Spirit. In particular, quit squelching prophecy with your contemptuous attitude. Now, I'm thinking, Thessalonians, what are you doing? 
Why would Paul say this to you? What in the world is going on at the church at Thessalonica that would cause Paul to write a statement like that that has application to you and me? I'm going to summarize it this way and then I'm going to try to illustrate this for you. I'm going to summarize it this way. Spiritual people, according to these verses, have made a decision. That's our word. They're decided people. Spiritual people have made a decision to allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in my life. It's that simple. I'll tell you a story. A story about a man whose name is Dave Chapman. I've forgotten the actual source for this story. It is a true story. I think it comes from uh, one of Charles Colson's books. And so some of you may have spotted this individual. Dave was a successful businessman. Young man, uh, he had given his life to Jesus. But like many men, uh, as his life progressed, he uh, he just couldn't get enthused about especially church. Uh, In fact, he had even come to resent the claims that uh, church had had on his wife. Her name is Kay. Yeah, he wrote to a friend, Kay's active in the church all right. She wakes up in the morning, sings the doxology in the shower, then runs off either to a Bible study or choir practice or some Save the Savages Guild or something that ought to be called Protestants for Prudery. Why, she even attends an exercise class. It's called Praise Our Size. Can you believe it? Frankly, Kay's so involved in learning about family life and body life and how to live the Christian life that I'm beginning to think she doesn't have time for our life. And, you know, Dave's evaluation wasn't entirely wrong. Because if Dave, typical male, was becoming drawn and resentful, Kay was trying to lose herself in busyness. And have you learned that just because we call it Christian, Christian busyness is no more fulfilling than just busyness all of its own. And their marriage was struggling and their relationship was showing signs of the strain. Well, one morning, Dave, um, he did go to church uh, sometimes. And when he went to church, one of those sermons that he had heard his pastor speak on, said something about, you know, you need to get into the Word of God on a daily, regular basis if you can. He said, well, okay, today will be that day. So he starts reading through. He didn't know where to go. I mean, typical, he didn't know where to go. So he flipped his Bible open and it came to Psalm 82. And he's reading through and it's this ancient text and it's all this this strange world of Israel and all these things going on back there. And he read all the way down to verse 4. I mean, give him credit. He got all the way to verse 4. And he read this verse, Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. I was thinking, this just isn't practical. It It just doesn't fit my life. It just isn't what I need. And so he was frustrated and he closed his Bible and he just prayed a simple prayer. Lord, I don't know what or how, but something's got to change in my life. And then he went off to work. Later that morning, uh, Jim Rutledge's name came up. 
Jim worked for Dave in his accounting firm, and he had worked for him for several years. But recently, the quality of Jim's work had been going down, and Dave had done some inquiries and discovered that Jim had a drinking problem. He was an alcoholic. And today was the day Dave had determined that he was going to confront Jim with this issue. And so he called Dave, he called Jim into his office, and, and he said, not knowing exactly what to say, he said, Jim, I called you here because, honestly, I've been disappointed with the quality of your work lately, and you and I go back a long way, and I just want to talk. Absolute silence. Absolute. Jim had nothing to say. So Dave continued. He said, Jim, I, I know you have a drinking problem. There's no use you trying to deny it. I, I've already checked with employees and with your family. And uh, I'm not going to give you an option, Jim. You're, uh, you're going to enter a rehabilitation program. You need help. I guess you would call that an intervention. Huh? Well, at that point, Jim just kind of resignedly said, then you'll have my resignation before the day's over. He said, you think we haven't looked into this? It's costly. My insurance doesn't cover this. I don't know where I'm going to get the money to do that. I'll hand you my resignation by the end of the day. We just, we just can't afford to do that. Now, remember that passage that Jim had read, or Dave had read earlier that morning? Now, I don't know how the sure word of prophecy comes to you. I don't know how the Holy Spirit speaks to you, but in my experience, it's always tied to the Word of God. Scripture comes to mind at strange times when I'm not thinking about it or prepared for it. And guess what verse popped into Dave's head at just this point in the conversation? Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked one. Now, there's the everyday practical issue that I'm trying to get at with this point. What will Dave choose to do? Will he pour cold water on the Holy Spirit? Will he squelch the sure word of prophecy? Or will he obey? Now, it's that simple. It's that basic. It's that fundamental. Spirituality is responding to the Word of God when it comes to me in those practical, everyday, ordinary circumstances that cause me pain and sacrifice and discomfort and going out of my way. Well, I'll tell you the end of the story real quickly. Dave said yes to the Spirit of God. He says, I'll take care of the bill, Jim. It'd be far more costly for me to waste your experience here than not to cover you. Thank God for Dave. But reminded me that there's an old book that was written by a man. His name is William Law. Pastor, you may even have this in your study. It's called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. Now, I can summarize the entire theme of that book in a single sentence. And the theme of that book is this. Now, listen. You and I are only as spiritual as we intend to be. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? 
Question. How spiritual do you? How spiritual do I? Really? Really desire, want to be? What do I fuel and what do I quench in my life, in my family, and in my church? The kind of people God is looking for is decided people. When the Spirit speaks, they've decided to follow Him. That's the first thing I see here. If you're on that trail, you're on a good track. You're on a good path. You're aimed towards spirituality. Now, second verse, uh, I find the verses 21 and 22, uh, if the first word is decision, the second word I would point you to is the word uh, discernment. And I see this here in verses 21 and 22. Uh, Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, as the church has gotten more sophisticated, the world has gotten more complicated. I'll tell you what I mean by that. When I was growing up in church, uh, Jason, you won't remember this, but we used to have churches that had rules for membership. We used to have covenants. Remember those covenants? I don't dance. I don't chew. I don't go with girls that do. We had our, you remember the dancing part, don't you? We remember our, we remember our, our nasty nine, the filthy five, the dirty dozen. We had spirituality figured out. And if you didn't do all the right things, you were spiritual. Now, we got pretty sophisticated. We discovered that there, you know, that's not the way to spirituality. We can throw those rules away. Well, then the world got more complicated. I mean, it used to be that I knew that the only kind of movie I could go to was a Walt Disney movie. You seen the Walt Disney movies lately? And now all kinds of issues that weren't issues for us in our generation have, have just come into... They've just overwhelmed us in, in incredibly powerful ways. Things that we never thought would have surfaced have surfaced. And so it's it become increasingly important for us to become discerning. Now... So I want to give you a little test in discernment this morning. This is, this is all a test today, okay? A little test in discernment. It's from the Old Testament. You don't need to turn there. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to tell you a story that most of you already know, but there's a little twist at the end of the story that you may or may not get. The next 60 se- This is just a test. The next 60 seconds is just a test, Okay? The stories of Naaman, uh, who uh, was a, uh, a soldier in his day. Actually, he could have been president of his country if they'd had presidents in those days. He was, he was sort of like Colin Powell. You know, Colin Powell, you know, he, he did so well in the military that people liked him. And, and if he had wanted to run for office at one point, Colin Powell could have run for office. And chances are he probably had a good shot at even being elected. Uh, He served an army in a nation called Aram in the Old Testament. Today we know it as Syria. Okay, so this is where he lived. Now, this, this man had a lot of things going for him. 
He was great in the eyes of his king, we're told. And he had a good, solid reputation. And we're also told he actually lived up to it. He really was a good warrior. He had things going for him. I'm guessing he had a beautiful wife. I'm guessing he had you know, a nice home. I'm guessing he had two cars in his garage. I'm guessing everything was going well for this man, except he was a leper. He was a leper. There's always a crook in the lot. Now, that comes from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. There's always a twist. There's always a turn. Isn't there always something wrong, even in the best of life? Well, he was a leper. And I'm guessing he was like most of us. He, he probably got up in the morning and he would complain to his wife, Honey, here's this white spot again. Somebody needs to do something about this. And I'm sure it kind of got him grumpy and there was no cream he could put on to make it go away. And actually in his culture, that made him something of an outcast. As famous as he was, it made him something of an outcast. You know, in fact, it was so tainted, it would be very similar to saying that he had HIV today. He was infected. Uh, and, and so, what we're told in that story is that on one of the raids that the Syrians, the Aramites, had conducted, a little Israeli slave girl had been captured, and she'd heard her master talk about this problem that he had for so long. Finally, she spoke up and she said, you know, there's a prophet in Israel. And if, if my master, if Naaman will just go to the prophet in Israel, I'm sure he can do something for you. Okay. He says, that sounds like a good idea to me. Now, this is where it all gets so modern. Because, you see, it's so hard for the world to take religion, Christianity, seriously. Now, we can take politics seriously, and we can take education seriously, and we can take a lot of other things, but it's really hard to take religion seriously. And that was the same way it was in, in Naaman's day. So Naaman doesn't go to the prophet. He goes to his king. He says, this is my problem. This is what I think can happen. His king writes a letter to the king of Israel and gives him gifts and gives him all kinds of presents and then this official letter. So Naaman goes down to the king of Israel and tries to talk to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel can't think in right terms either. He says, wow, this all looks like an excuse to start a war to me. Well, turn on the news tonight and see if that isn't exactly the kind of stuff that goes on all the time between political entities. Well, the prophet then, and it happens to be Elisha, the prophet overhears this conversation somehow, gets word, and he says, you know, send him on down my direction. Now, Naaman, he's used to red carpet treatment. In fact, he says, I expected that Elisha, when I came, he was going to roll out a red carpet. He was going to walk out like prophets are supposed to do. He was going to wave his hand before the Lord. He was going to do this big rigmarole kind of thing. I mean, I'm a pretty important guy, you know. And he was going to do all this special stuff and chant three times. And, and, and he was going to heal me in this marvelous, miraculous, that everybody would know how important I am. And the prophet Elisha won't even come out of his house. He sends a servant to greet Naaman and gives the servant a message, go wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. And Naaman got mad. He wasn't used to that kind of treatment. He wasn't used to it at all. Now, by the way, this isn't the test. We're not at the test yet. But isn't this a marvelous illustration of the doctrine of Christian salvation? We want to come on our terms. We want something glorious. If you just give me a big work to do, God, I'll do it for you and I'll earn my way to heaven. 
If you'll just let me do something, God, I'll do it. I'll be good enough. I promise. I'll get there. Just give me something to do as long as I can maintain my dignity and become a Christian. And Francis Schaeffer says, you know what? There's only one way to become a believer. And you do it on your knees and you kneel before a cross and you humble yourself and you wash yourself in a muddy Jordan River, so to speak, before the cross. You say, I can't save myself. I can't do this. And I can't glorify myself and be saved at the same time. Lord, I just cast myself upon You. Isn't that a marvelous picture of Christian salvation? Not by works of righteousness which we are... Uh, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by the grace of God we are saved. Well, Naaman goes marching off. At first he says no. His servants talk him into coming on back. He does come back. He does what Elisha tells him to do. He gets healed. He's cleansed. Now he's a new believer. You know, there's nothing any scarier, pastors, is there, than a new believer. Because now he comes back and he's got a problem. See, he works in a pretty important job. He's got to go in with the king every day, and the king just happens to be a pagan. And this pagan every day bows down to a god, Rimon. And in those days when kings bowed down, we do this, Jason, I do this with Pastor Rick. When, when Pastor Rick, we bow. And he says, now, that's going, to get, that's going to send a false signal. Everybody's going to think I'm worshiping the wrong god. I got an idea. There's nothing any more frightening than a baby believer with an idea. Naaman says, I got an idea. What if you give me two bags of Israeli dirt? Put them on my mule. I'll take that back with me. And then when we go into worship, I'll spread that dirt out. And when my king bows, I'll be bowing on Israeli dirt so I can maintain my testimony and keep my job at the same time. You see how complicated his life was? He wasn't living in the traditional protected Israeli environment. He was out there in the world. And he had to figure out some ways of maintaining his testimony in a complicated world. That's the test. What would you tell him to do? Would you throw a rule at him? Abstain from all appearance of evil. No, we Christians don't do that kind of thing. What would you tell him to do? Well, i tell you what Elisha said. That's a great idea. Go in peace. And you see, we've come to a place where a part of being spiritual is that we're going to have to figure some stuff out that previous generations didn't. And we're not going to be able to throw a simple rule at it. We're going to have to sometimes even take a risk of looking like we're compromising. But in that compromise, there's got to be a true and a genuine and a sincere faith and belief in God. And that was what Naaman was doing. So here's the question. What is my level of spiritual discernment? Am I growing in my ability to determine God's will where there are no hard and fast rules? That's a part of what Pastor Rick labors for Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to help us to understand the fundamental Christian principles to give us a mind that thinks Christianly to address a complex world. That's the second point. Third point, real quickly. Uh, the third word is another D word. I call it dependence. I find it in verses 23 and 24. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Notice the emphasis on God. 
May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the passive. May it be kept. The one who calls you, he is faithful. He will do it. Now, I've already said Philippians is in the Bible and that we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But ultimately, undergirding all this is that God is the one that carries us through. We are dependent on Him even as we work out our salvation. Uh, We're dependent on Him. That's the word dependence here. Some of you will recognize the names of Amy Carmichael and Andrew Murray. Amy Carmichael was first a missionary to India and then to Japan, and later she became a devotional writer. Some of you have probably seen some of her books. Andrew Murray is a little less well-known, except maybe to pastors and preachers and teachers. Andrew Murray was a South African Dutch Reformed pastor. He was associated with a thing called the Keswick Movement, which was sort of a deeper life movement uh, in a previous generation. Well, it just so happened that during their travels, at one time these two were staying together in a home. And uh, Amy tells the story in a book entitled, Though the Mountains Shake. She said that she always knew by reputation that uh, Andrew Murray must be a good man. I mean, he'd written all these books and he was a preacher in worldwide. But she just wanted to see him in action. Well, sure enough, something happened to Andrew Murray that week. She doesn't tell us what. It was some kind of a tragedy, some kind of a disappointment. But she does tell us how Amy react, or how, how uh, Andrew Murray reacted. This is the way she records the way he responded to the difficulty. He was quiet for a while with his Lord, she writes. Then he wrote these words for himself. Apparently she asked him for them later. Murray wrote, First, he brought me here. It is by his will that I am in this strait, this difficult, this hard place. And in that fact, I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. I think that's the tough part. That's the tough part. The difficulty we accept living as his child with the grace that he gives. That's the hard part. Then, he will make the trial a blessing teaching me the lessons He intends me to learn and working in me the grace He means to bestow. That's how Christians grow. Finally, last, in His own good time, He can. Now, I'm so glad He did not write, He will. There's no guarantee. Remember our conversation a couple of weeks ago when we talked about hard spots? There's no guarantee that God will always remove me from difficulty. He sometimes does. He sometimes doesn't. He knows what's best for us. In His good time, He can bring me out again. How and when, He knows. So, summarizing, let me say that I am here by God's appointment, in God's keeping, under God's training, for God's time. There is no better definition of dependence than that. That's what it means to depend on God in your life. So the question is, how dependent on God am I, especially when things are hard and life just doesn't seem to be going my way? Is this the way I respond? 
And then that brings me uh, real quickly to the last uh, D in this passage. It's uh, the word I call discipline. When I work through verses 25, 26, 27, uh, even on into 28, what I see here are actually what we call the spiritual disciplines. Now, from my background, I prefer to call them uh, spiritual graces. These are the graces of the Christian life. But the, temp- the contemporary word people seem to like is, are we, practicing the Christ- are we exercising the Christian disciplines? Well, they're all here. You see them starting in verse 25. Brothers, pray for us. Prayer. Prayer is a discipline. It's not easy. Every time I try to pray, I don't know about you guys, my mind gets distracted. I think I've done a really good deal if I can pray four minutes. Man, I'm super spiritual today. If I get four minutes and 30 seconds, whoa, Rick, I need a raise, man. We're talking spiritual here. And so I started journaling to help focus, you know, the way I pray. And it's helped me to pray a little bit longer. But that's not the length. I'm just, you know, kind of poking fun at it. But prayer, especially if we're praying for others, intercessory prayer, keeping my eyes off myself. I'm important, but praying for other people as well. That's one of the disciplines of the Christian life. We've got to do that. We've got to do that to be spiritual. We have to do that. Now then you see the second one. I like this one. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now you've seen the stuff on, uh, you know, uh, Eastern countries where they walk up and they kiss one another. And, and that was what Paul was talking about. And we can translate that, I think. I think I would translate this something like, discover those culturally relevant expressions of Christian unity. And it may not be anything really Significant? It may just be a Christian potluck. Is that relevant? Is that a significant way of showing that you belong to the body of Christ? Then do it. If it means coming to church or attending a small group or being in an ABF, is that the contemporary cultural way of showing that you belong to the body of Christ? Then do it. Whether you want to or not sometimes. It's a discipline, you see. That's why we call them disciplines. I didn't feel like coming to church this morning. Well, that's why they call it a discipline for crying out loud. Then I like this next one. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to the brothers. Read the book. (laughs) Read the book. It's a discipline. I know some of you don't like to read. All I can tell you is there's treasure here. You've been listening to Rick's sermons on Proverbs. There's treasure here. And you can't be a growing Christian without getting significantly involved with this book. Read the book. And then verse 28, I see this this last thing. I have a suspicion before I tell you about this that the Apostle Paul was a junkie. I think the Apostle Paul woke up every morning and I think his hands shook. I think his mouth was dry. I think he felt weak and insecure until he shot up on his addiction every day. I think the Apostle Paul was just a miserable addict and couldn't make it through life without his fix. And you know what he was addicted to? There's the word right there. Grace. Every single letter Paul writes, he signs with the word grace. 
It's the Apostle Paul's testimony. He says, you know, I outworked all the other apostles. It wasn't me. It was the grace of God that worked in me. I am the least of all the apostles, but it was by grace that he accomplished what he accomplished. I think the Apostle Paul was addicted to grace. Now, grace is not a substance, a stuff. Grace is just simply looking at God and recognizing He loves me in spite of myself. Every day, Paul reminded me, reminded himself, can I use the old expression, I'm a worm, I'm a miserable lost sinner, I can't do anything without Jesus, but God loves me because of what Jesus did on the cross. Every day, Paul reminded himself of that truth. And in every experience he walked into, I can't do this on my own. I'll blow it. I'll try to get the glory out of it. I'll try to make myself the key figure in this whole thing. And unless I just focus on God, unless I receive God's grace, it won't happen. That's the way Paul lived. Those were four spiritual disciplines. So my question is, do I practice the spiritual disciplines? Have I become proficient in God's God-given means of grace. Well, there you have it. Four signposts that were on the path of what I would call true biblical spirituality. Now, here's the test at the end that I promise. You've been waiting for this, I know. I want you to rate yourself in your own mind. You don't have to do this. I'm not going to ask for papers or anything. On a scale of 1 to 10, I want you to rate yourself in response to each of these four questions. Question number one, have I made a choice that I reaffirm daily actually to be a spiritual person? Is that my intent? How do you rate yourself? One to ten. Do I really intend to be spiritual? Question number two, in a complicated world, am I practicing authentic spiritual discernment or... Do I simply fly beneath the radar and try to get away with as much as I can and still be considered spiritual or wait for somebody else to tell me what the rules of the game are? And how do you rate yourself? One to ten, mentally. How do you rate? Number three, when the going gets tough, do I lean more fully on God? And of course the alternative is, or do I grumble and complain? and whine and run. How do you rate yourself? One to ten. And then number four, do I actually practice the spiritual disciplines of praying for other believers? Of connecting with the body on a regular basis? Of studying the Bible as if it were the source of my life? and of relying upon God's grace to get me through every single experience? How do you rate yourself? From 1 to 10. Now, at a minimum, if you can say yes, if you can even give yourself a 1 in each of these areas, then I can assure you that you're on the right track. And growth for you means to push it. 2, 3, 4. That's Christian growth. That's growth in the spiritual life. Pray with me this morning. Lord, our desire 
is to love you and to serve you in the way that you want us to. And so I pray that you take this message and all the other kinds of messages this good group of people have heard. Would you just stir it all up in their minds, Lord, and give them the ability to respond by the Spirit of God within them so that they too can say, yes, we are men and women of God. We're men and women of the Spirit. We're men and women who follow you day by day. In Jesus' name and for his glory.